This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 848, A Conversation with Curtis Finley. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 848. It's our uh, conversation with Curtis Finley. Curtis Finley is a friend of the show, uh, although ironically, his first appearance was actually on episode 800, which I do recommend as a primer to this episode as we talk a little bit more kind of about his backstory, getting into comics, etc. Uh, it's the last segment of that show, so you might want to look at the uh, the show notes there as it's like a three and a half hour episode or something like that. Um, so Curtis uh, has been a friend of the show for a while. I've been on his podcast, the Epic Marvel Podcast, uh, numerous times is both his super his spider-man modern age or bronze to modern we haven't really decided so far pretty much just the more modern stuff 80s and on of spider-man and also his uh, daredevil co-host um so we've been uh, you know we've, we've chatted a lot about comics and the epic collections but he is also working um for the library of american comics for idw uh as the editor of their uh, their project right now of uh representing in chronological order the complete for better or for worse which is a you know a long-running uh comic strip which was you know ran for 30 years um ending in i believe 2008 and then kind of having semi kind of new stuff up until i think 2010 um so in this episode i, t- I talk about the new volume with curtis so uh volume five recently came out of for better or for worse which is kind of the marks the midway point um there's going to be nine volumes so this is officially they've, they've just passed that kind of midway point so uh it was nice to have curtis on i i got into this in the, the show but i had always kind of known for better or for worse i've I read it over the years uh you know as part of those kind of weekend uh comic strips i used to get with my dad he used to buy the uh, toronto star and the uh, globe and mail and uh on the weekends i would look at the, uh, the the cartoon strips and i was always you know excited to see those they were in color it was more exciting than your standard newspaper um and so that was my, my main interaction with for better or for worse i don't think i'd really seen a lot of the kind of the dailies um and so when actually curtis kind of said on on facebook he was like you know is anyone interested who kind of has a podcast or a website to you know talk about the fifth volume and i was like oh, you know, i'd love to it's one of those things i was uh he had mentioned you know at some at some point there might be like box sets i was like well do i wait for box sets or not and do i wait to get like three box sets of three volumes each or do i you know buy in advance anyways i was always kind of hemming and hawing about it so uh, i finally kind of got off my ass once you know i had this beautiful package come from idw and it had volume five in it i was really excited to read it and then i started reading it with my son and he loves it and so it's become this thing like it's like our bedtime reading is is reading you know the adventures of these characters because obviously i relate to the parents but he really he really relates to the kids and so i was like oh well i guess i'll, I'll buy volume four that's when the april the youngest who were you know in in the fifth volume you know she's like a toddler i uh, got to, to actually get to see her born in volume four and then uh it's actually this past weekend after the podcast with uh, curtis last week i finally got my hands on volumes one and two finally uh, bought them so i'm excited to start reading them when zach's like you know yeah we got to go back to the beginning we got to go back to you know volume one so i'm really excited for that um but uh, volume three eludes me and we do talk about that on this episode so um anyways that's a lot of preamble but uh, i had a great time talking with curtis it's always a fun time chatting with him um it's interesting to talk about talk with him about something that isn't you know spider-man and uh and daredevil because we have such a niche in terms of how we usually communicate obviously we chat about other things kind of offline and in messenger and that kind of stuff but um in terms of our kind of 
kind of on-air conversations, it is, you know, usually very specific. Um, so it's nice to kind of talk about, you know, turn the camera around and make it on him and uh, talk about uh, what Curtis does. Uh, and again, I do recommend going back to episode 800 to uh, listen to Curtis's segment there because, again, we talk a lot about, you know, the, if, if you're if you're if you've come to Curtis from the Epic Marvel podcast or the Epic Marvel Collection uh, group on Facebook, then I think you'll really kind of dig getting to know Curtis a little bit better in that episode. Uh, this is again we put the focus more on his work and the work of uh, for better or for worse and kind of how it all came about and his role as editor, etc. Anyways, this is a very long preamble for the episode, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a great time. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail dot com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. And actually, technically, I think we're on uh, Amazon Music now as well. Anyways, uh, thanks for listening, and let's get right into the conversation with Curtis Finley. Enjoy. Curtis, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Always glad to be here, Adam. Thanks for uh, having me on your show once again. For sure. It's been almost... It's, it's weird. I was looking at it. So you're on episode 800. This is episode 848. So it's already been 48 episodes, but it doesn't feel like that long since we've chatted about comics and stuff. But uh, Oh, for sure. So people, first of all, as a, as a primer to you and your background, people should go back and listen to not the entire episode 800, because it's like three hours long, but just the uh, the last segment, <laughs> which is yours, because um, we get to know a little bit more about you. And I, I, I was embarrassed to think that there's things I just did not know about you. Uh, it's you know we've been I would call us friends and we've you yep. know we've done you know your podcast you know for for the last few years and so yet there was still all the stuff I didn't know so I it's a great primer on who you are and what you like. I had a fun time in that conversation it's, and it was good. It's good to to go back on that one and for myself even just to hear what I talked what I spoke about and. Uh, find out more about myself <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting too right because as podcasters i mean especially like you know i'm always talking to an interview subject and you are usually you know talking about a specific text um yep. and you're talking with someone else so you're never really talking about yourself and maybe on like maybe your first episode i can't even remember that far back but like really it's yeah. it, for you it's kind of like I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna say that your show is kind of like jeopardy where it's not the host who's really the attraction it's the content um, yes. You know, it's the, it's the contestants in this case, but it's the comics that you're kind of putting through its pace. Obviously, you're dissecting it and talking about it through your own lens, but really, it's the content that makes it sparkle, and that is kind of what people are coming for. They obviously stay for you and your commentary, and they'll you know get other episodes and they'll download them as well. But really, they they first come for that. That's true. That's very true. So it's interesting, and I, I, I guess I'm kind of the same way. Where I don't think typically people are coming for my commentary on things. I think they're they're coming for you know who's the next interview that I have. So today it's you. I'm glad to be the subject this time. Pretty good. <laughs> well, and I'm not the only subject. I mean, the subject we're talking about is going to be for better or for worse. I just happen to be along for the ride as well. That's true. So let's go way back. So long before you ever sat down with Lynn and interviewed her, what was your original kind of, uh, you know, experience with For Better or For Worse? Was it when you were growing up? Was it one of those strips that you saw, you know, on a regular basis or just on the on the, uh, on the the weekend strips? Like, how did it first kind of come into your life? Uh, well, in two ways. I was a big fan of the comic pages, the Sunday comics. My, my grandma had a subscription to the, uh, the, the newspaper and uh, and so she would pull the Sunday color sections out and uh, and save them, set them aside. And every time we went over to her house, I'd have a, a stack of these comics there for me. And, it, you know, it's the, it's the comic pages that had Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes and, 
you know, all of this stuff, like Wizard of Id and Hagar the Horrible, High and Lois, <laughs> all of that stuff. All of these great classic comic strips from, from this is this is the maybe the mid to late eighties. Mm-hmm. And for better or for worse was one of them. And of course I got to know all of the strips in their Bloom County and all of this kind of stuff. And and, and for better or for worse was just one of the ones that I got to know. And I liked it. It was great. This and it would but I only read the Sundays. And so you don't, you never got the sense of the overarching story that happened because it's only the Sundays. The way that that Lynn positioned the Sundays is that they were standalone comic strip stories, whereas the Monday to Saturday had the ongoing narrative. And this was because some newspapers could choose to only buy the Sunday strips for their newspaper, and Mm -hmm. some of them would only buy the daily strips. And then there, of course, there were a bunch that would buy both uh, the dailies and the Sundays. So Lynn had to make it so that if this newspaper was only buying just the Sunday strips, uh, they it wouldn't be like one chapter out of seven out of the week. Mm. Uh, it would have to be a standalone thing. So I, I enjoyed those strips a lot. And then I discovered also that they had the books at the library, the, like the annual collections. Every mm-hmm. year, the syndicate would publish a new book that had the previous year's worth of strips in it. And so then I would get those out and read. And that's when I really started to to understand and really love For Better, For Worse. And I am... Uh, so for the, for the listeners that don't know, this is a family strip, family comic strip, about your kind of average, middle-class, in this case, Canadian family... And it has a mom and a dad. The dad is a dentist. The mom is a stay-at-home mom at the beginning, and she goes through various stages of what she does with her life. And they have, at the beginning of the strip, they have two kids. And the kids are about four and one and a half or so, maybe. And the the really neat thing about the strip is that the characters age in real time. Uh, So unlike Calvin and Hobbes, who throughout the ten years that that was running, Calvin stayed an eight-year-old kid, or like Peanuts, which ran for 50 years, but Charlie Brown is always a child. Uh, these kids actually aged. And when I discovered, for better or for worse, um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was about maybe 9 or 10 years old, which happened to be, be the age that I was. Mm. And so she grew up at the same rate that I grew up. And so when I'd get these annual collections from the library, when they'd have the new one available... I'd read it, and she'd be at the same stage of life that I was, going through teenage years, graduating, starting college, and all this kind of stuff, right? And it was very cool. I could really relate to it that way, and I, I really enjoyed that strip. And then Michael as well, the older brother, who's a few years older, uh, was, was not that far off. And because I was reading um, a lot of these books retroactively, um, I could easily relate to his his story as well, even more so than Elizabeth because he's – going through guy things <laughs> and I was like oh yeah I, I can relate to that so so that was again the, the kind of the, the genesis of where it was now did you continue to follow the strip all the way kind of along till when it concluded or did you kind of taper off I mean I feel like a lot of us kind of you know as you said there's something about that initial 
you know, kind of reading the weekend, you know, uh, strips and, and what that's like. Because, I mean, my dad always used to have the big weekly paper, and so I'd always go through yeah. the comics and let the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, that kind of stuff. And th- those are the big things that always kind of stood out to me. Um, but I don't think I ever really saw much of the black and white strips of, of any strips, to be honest, because I don't know if my dad was getting a lot of daily papers anymore. Um, and I feel like less people were, but there's something about those those big weekend strips. So when when do you kind of taper off, or do you ever taper off? I did taper off. There was a point where my grandmother in her, you know, aging years just started forgetting to save the the, the (laughs) paper. And, you know, I I would just let it drop because it's like, you know, I can't fault her for not remembering to do this thing that I, that I want her to do for me. Uh, So I just let it drop. That was probably, um, I don't know, the late nineties or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there was also a point when, you know, as a kid, I would accompany my mom to the library. She would bring us and we'd have some, spend some quality time there and run around the kids section or whatever. And then there was a point where, you know, if I want to go to the library, I got to get there myself. So I kind of just stopped going to the library. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and then I stopped reading those collections. So yeah, probably in my late teens or early young adult years, uh, I would read it more sporadically and then eventually just kind of stopped reading it. And then lay, later on, once I had more of a disposable income and I was getting into these more of these comic strip collections and rekindling my love for all of this and discovering all these strips I'd never read before, I started buying the For Better or For Worse books again mm. and caught myself up. And, then, and, and there were just a couple books that I was missing. And then when the opportunity came up in 2016 to do an interview with Lynn myself uh, for a podcast that I had back then uh, I jumped at the chance to do that and you know bought up the remaining books and did a big read through of the whole thing so I'd be well informed for the interview and all this kind of stuff and just had a great time revisiting this and and now and now that we're publishing these books uh, and I'm I am I'm the editor on on these going through all of these strips again for, you know, I don't know how many times it's been now that I've read through all of these. It's still wonderful. I still love it. It's still one of my favorite comic strips ever. What, what, what do you think it is that, again, kind of makes it one of those, one of your favorite strips of all time? Again, I, I think, as you kind of touched on before, the special nature of the fact that the characters age through things, that it's not you know, static. It's not the Simpsons where it's going to be the same age basically forever. There's just something really special about seeing characters evolve. And it's in, so the adventures they go through or the, you know, the travails they go through, it does change them. It does, you know, have an impact and you see them evolution over time where I guess you don't see that in a lot of other strips. It's true. And the characters get to face different situations. You don't get stuck in a rut Uh, with peanuts. Like, Fantagraphics released these beautiful hardcover books of Peanuts, and there's 25 books that cover all 50 years. But it's like, am I really going to sit down and just binge Peanuts for, like, 50 years worth of Peanuts? No, I'm not going to do that. It's just, (laughs) it gets really monotonous. And even Calvin and Hobbes, how much I love that strip, uh, he did it for 10 years, and even that one can get fairly monotonous and he like when you try to, to binge these big volumes all at once but for better or for worse because it's an ongoing narrative it's so different uh, the characters 
that uh, that you see in one book are very different characters that you'll see in a different volume because of the just the development of their ages, and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the other reason I really like it is that Lynn is just an incredible storyteller, and not only is it um, is it funny, like she does still do the gag a day. Uh, uh, writing mm-hmm. where where each each strip has a punchline and it's funny. She's a very funny person, but it also has incredible heart. Uh, all of these characters, you know, they learn, they grow, they love each other, and there are some s- sincerely touching moments throughout uh, the entire series that 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 just stick with you. Mm-hmm. It's really good. So I want to go back for a second. So when you did do that first interview with Lynn, so how did that even come about? Because obviously this ended up being, you know, at the time you probably would not have realized that it would, you know, really kind of take you in a, uh, no. a, a, a specific direction that's going to take you a certain amount of time and it's going to be part of your life. But, you know, and which is kind of crazy when you think about, you know, something that may have seemed so simple and innocent ended up becoming like, you know, as I said, like part of your career. But what were, what were the circumstances where you even got that opportunity? When I back back in that in 2016, I had a different podcast, not the Marvel one that I do now with you. Um, I had one called the Pullbox Podcast, and it was just kind of a generic comic podcast where we talk about different books and such. Didn't have the the razor focus that, that the Marvel one does, but I did a series of interviews at the time as well. And Lynn was scheduled to be a guest of honor at a convention in, in Vancouver. And so I reached out through her webpage just saying, hey, I hear you're in town. Can we meet to do an interview? And uh, she said, yes. In fa- and she said, in fact, actually, that weekend is not great because of the convention. I'm just too busy. But I'm moving to town. Oh. Do you want to just postpone it for a week or so? And then when I'm settled in, in my new place, uh, we can do the interview. And I'm like, of, of course, absolutely. That sounds great. And so, she, yeah, she moved to Vancouver. And at that point, um, I was working with the Library of American Comics still, and I said to my publisher, I said, hey, Dean, I'm going to be meeting with Lynn Johnston. Would you have any, any interest in doing For Better or For Worse books? And he's like, heck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I prepared myself. After the interview, I came armed with you know, some samples of the work, and I, I had the pitch ready. So after the interview, I could say, hey, this is what I also do. Would you be interested in, in, you know, reprinting all your your strips through this company who does incredible work? And she took a look at that the book took, and I let her borrow some samples, and she took it back to her daughter who also runs the business with her, and 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 they molded over, and they're like, yeah, let's do this. So going in, um, like first of all, how nervous were you to kind of pitch that? Well, you know, I actually. Um, by the time the interview was done, I wasn't nervous because she's actually a very friendly and disarming person. Uh, she's easy to talk to. And uh, and so by the time that the interview was finished, I was, I was like, it, it felt like we were old friends, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it really wasn't an issue for me to do that. Uh, and like the, my whole thing also is like, I don't, I don't, try not to let that stuff get to me. If, like, if they don't want to do it, then they don't want to do it. And it, doesn't, it just doesn't hurt to ask. It's no skin off my shoulder if they want to go in a different direction. So mm-hmm. um, it, was, it, it ended up being great, yeah. What was the duration of the interview, considering it changed your life? So, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I'd have to look back maybe 
between an hour and an hour and a half or so. It wasn't terribly long. Um, I, I I don't like to do my interviews for too long because I just don't want to impose on the the person that I'm interviewing as well. So I try to, to limit myself to you know maybe around an hour or just a little longer than that. And was this done? I guess uh, it's it's hard to imagine in, in uh, a COVID era, but this was done in person. Yeah, she invited me over to her house, her new house that she had just moved into. So that was nice. <laughs> it's interesting too because I guess in that situation, like if she was done. She can just escort you out. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it, it, I guess that does become a little awkward. It's like, what if the interview goes sour and she just doesn't want me to be there anymore? It's not like she can just hang up the phone on me. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Well, but well unfortunately, I uh, I try not to be a controversial interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've only had a chance to interview like a handful in person, and one of them was Chip Zdarsky in my house. And yeah, that was... I heard, I listened to that one, and that was a great interview. I think there's something different about interviewing a person when you're face to face with them than when you are in a like over the phone. Oh, for sure. The, yeah, I mean that. That was, I mean, definitely a highlight for me, and it's one I always kind of go back to because I still can't believe he came to my house. Like, yeah. it, like we didn't meet somewhere else. Like, we didn't go to like a neutral location. Like, he was just like, "Oh yeah, you're in Toronto, so yeah, I'll come to your house." I'm like, "Okay, sure." Like, Pretty cool. Who says no to that? Um, <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh man, like I hope he doesn't feel like we have to keep talking." But like, if he wanted to go, he'd leave, right? So, it's it was it's fantastic. I like it when the uh, creators are just down to earth and you know i think we in the comic industry think that we're talking to all these rock star people like celebrities but they are not on the same level as like you know robert downey jr and they're happy to to chat with us on this on our level <laughs> well, for sure it's always yeah it's always uh been very i mean exciting because like yeah you're right because i do think of comic like i i, I read comics i love comics and so yeah they are my rock stars even though they may yeah. not actually be rock stars and so totally. yeah there's just something about uh you know the fact that you can ask someone i remember when i first started doing interviews like i i had talked with the artist on manhattan projects i love that book so i was like i gotta ha- please come on my show and talk to about it it was the first time i'd ever interviewed anyone for the show and i had no I didn't think I'd be able to keep that going. And then so I had him on a t- the second time and I was like, maybe I could ask other people. Like I've, I would listen to podcasts like Comic Geek Speak and they would have creators on at the time, although they actually haven't done that in a long time. And so I was like, I, I could do that. I could ask someone, uh, you know, what's the worst that they could ever say? They just say, no, who cares? Right. Um, yeah. And then it, it always boggles my mind that like the first like three I had were like Tom DeFalco, Chris Claremont. Like I was like, these are the people who are the reason of why I fell in love with these books. Like they're yeah. some of their books were the ones that were the touchstones for me Tom DeFalco especially and so being able to chat with him was just like it just blew my mind he's so open and willing to chat I love it my first interview for the Marvel podcast was Jim Shooter (laughs) I was like I'm a a nobody I don't have any credit to my name and he was like yeah sure let's chat (laughs) I'm so jealous of that because I've never I've never been able to get through to him and like I would just I would just want to hear them talk like I, I that's one of those things where you could be controversial or you could just let them talk and just take it in like yeah. I talked to um, Chuck Austin and obviously he has a reputation in comics for some of the, some of his books right but right. like X-Men yes right and so yeah. it was interesting to talk to him and like obviously I want to talk about some of the controversy but like I don't have any axe to grind against this man and like right. I may not have totally. liked all of his books but who cares like you're going to like some and you're not going to like others but can you be civil and still have a conversation and that was a really interesting one to be like 
you know, because he obviously knows what people think of him. It's not yeah. like he doesn't know. So I was trying to be like gentle about it because I still I want to know his perspective. Um, but also being, you know, it's you got to have tact. You have to not be. I listen to some podcast interviews. And I'm like, how did this person agree to do an interview with this person who's like oh, a I bludgeon? Know. And like, yeah. you, you can't do that. You got to be like a scalpel. If you're trying to, you know, get out good stories. And at the end of the day, I want to hear a good story. And it does. I actually, I, I will say that sometimes I've interviewed people and they've. You know, some of the work I haven't always liked, but talking with them makes me appreciate the work more um, because I can go back and I can say, well, I can see what they were doing or I can, you know, I can now I've talked to that person. I can understand what else was going on. And now I can respect this in a way that maybe I couldn't before I was too close to it. And now that I've been able to kind of step back and talk to the creator, it takes on a different life. Totally. Yeah, I, I hear you. It's it's really neat just to be able to get a, a better appreciation when understanding uh, more of the context of, of the, the era that it was written in or what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, it, um, some of my favorite ones were are, uh, my Steve Englehart interviews because there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes <laughs> during his, his years at Marvel in like the 80s and stuff. And it's like, oh, I understand some of these artistic choices he makes now because of the stuff that he was forced to either forced to do or had to do out of uh, necessity or whatever. Um, it, yeah, very interesting. To go back to for play- better, for worse, for a second. So, oh, well, not for a second, for the interview. Um, now, now that it's <laughs> taken us taken us on a on a tangent. Um, when you guys, when you've you know done the legal work and you've you start working on the project, how do you? How, what was the process like in kind of determining, this might seem kind of boring stuff, but, you know, determining how many volumes, how this is going to break down, you know, what, you know, how you would kind of scoop things together. How did, how did that process kind of come about? Well, uh, first of all, I didn't have to work with, with any of the legal stuff at all, thankfully, because I don't know any of that stuff. It was <laughs> between the Library of American Comics and IDW's legal team and For Better or For Worse's legal team. They wrote up all the contracts and made up all the arrangements and everything like that, and and then I, you know, it just magically happens. <laughs> I don't know how it, how it happens, but it happens. And but then, yeah, my original idea was to to do twelve. Let's see, to do fifteen books because she did the strip for thirty years, and fifteen books would mean that we could put two years in each volume and that's pretty standard for a library of American comics. If you look at their, you know, Dick Tracy or or Steve Canyon, or whatever else, what other comic strips they have, they usually put about two years, if they can, if they can do that, into one volume, uh, and it's a good size, good, you know, a hefty size book. Uh, but Dean said that um, he would, he thinks that we should put more into the book because the, um, just thinking long term, fifteen volumes is a long, uh, is a lot to commit to. Mm. And he he's done that with you know Dick Tracy I think is on volume twenty nine now <laughs> and it's the final volume is coming out in a few weeks and is collecting all of Dick Tracy by Chester Gold the original creator like the entire run from start to finish is going to be available in twenty nine volumes two years at a time and like he's like that took. 15 years to, to almost 15 years to get out right well not 15 years what is it maybe 13 years mm-hmm. to get all of those books out it's like I he's looking to the future and it's like I, I we got to get these books out as fast as possible uh, and the other hard part is that a company like like Barnes and Noble will 
stock a for better or for worse book. In fact, that's probably um, a, a good place to get for better or for worse because the clientele is more likely to pick it up at Barnes and Noble or off Amazon or whatever than they are to find it in the comic book shop. Mm-hmm. Um, they, but Barnes and Noble will say, uh, we don't want to have more than one book like every year hmm. because because their bookstore they have limited space and there this will be found on the humor section and you think about the humor section in Barnes and Noble it's like uh, one shelf like one yeah. section one section and they have like 15 Garfield books because those always sell <laughs> uh, but how many for better or for worse especially these huge thick volumes that takes up a lot of real estate on their shelf so they'll say we'll take one volume but don't give us any more than that until this book has run its course and sold, and then we'll take another one. So Random House, who distributes uh, all of IDW's books, they, they say, uh, okay, we can only, like, part of the contract has to be that we can only take maybe one a year. So we are actually on a nine-month rotation. We produce a For Better or For Worse book, or trying to at least, every one every nine months. Mm. So there's a little bit of boring behind the scenes <laughs> information for you. Oh, that's... But that's how that's a lot of how the decisions are made. Mm. So uh, Dean says, okay, if we have to do this on a nine month rotation, let's try and squeeze three and a half years into one book. And that's about five hundred pages, over five hundred pages. And then we can squeeze the whole series into nine volumes. Uh, and that will take us maybe about seven years, six or seven years to do, rather than fifteen years to do. <laughs> Much more reasonable time frame. So, I mean, so I, uh, a lot of questions. I mean, first of all, that's just so interesting. I want to go back for a second. You mentioned uh, in our last conversation that um, the Library of American Comics typically has dealt with creators who have already passed away and that Lynn would ended up being, I guess the second kind of living creator. What kind of extra, like, was that from, I guess your, your end or like, I'm obviously you're the editor, but you're, you're working with others. It was that kind of interesting for them to have to, again, deal with someone who hasn't passed away and you're not dealing with an estate and you can go directly to the original creator. Yeah. So it, it offers some good things and some bad things dealing with the creator that's alive because if you're talking about a comic strip that is a hundred years old let's say like crazy cat Hmm. which is a hundred years old george harriman is long gone he's been gone for many many decades and uh, and even his estate it's like we're talking about now the third generation or whatever in fact the crazy cat comics are now public domain oh wow like there's so much freedom in what you can do there um, because you, you're not really accountable to anybody in that sense, right? Mm. I mean, you still want to honor the comic strip and the artist and the legacy, but uh, you're not beholden to demands that people are making. Uh, with a, and, and then on the other side, there are other strips where the, the, the son or daughter or the estate controls the property and so they have a vested interest in the way that the information is being presented so there are cases where it's like you want to write about this this creator a certain way 
and maybe it's not going to put them in that great of a light because they were maybe not that great of a person in a part of their life. Mm. But the estate doesn't want that story told because it's like this is their relative. They want this person told in a good light. So, you know, you get you get uh, pushback a little bit on that. I have got that a little bit with the Chuck Jones book that I did mm. because Chuck Jones – Uh, in his later years at Warner Brothers, started moonlighting for MGM. Uh, He he had an exclusive contract with Warner Brothers, but he was doing an under-the-table deal writing uh, a movie for um, MGM called Gay Paris. And Warner Brothers found out about it and fired him. Wow. Um, And, yeah, and so when I was trying to write about this in the book, I was talking to his widow... And she was like, uh, I don't – is that what happened? I, I was getting kind of pushed back about you know, the fact that it wasn't putting Chuck Jones in that great of a light. <laughs> so you know, they um, – eventually I, I was able to put it in. I talked to them and they agreed about the facts or whatever. And, but we had to go through that process of like making sure – that what I was saying was agreeable to them. And of course, I want it to be agreeable to them, but I also want it to be the truth, hmm. right? And then on the on the other hand now, talking with Lynn Johnston, she's great because she, um, she, she's been so accommodating with everything we want to do. So the, one of the things that I presented to her when I pitched the book was I want to um, – I want to reprint everything from start to finish – the way that it was originally presented at the beginning. So the the books that she – that her syndicate published over the years, like way back in the 80s, uh, she curated those strips and took out ones that she didn't like anymore. She took – she rearranged the order so that it would maybe tell the story a little bit better. Mm. She altered some of the panels so that they would look better. Uh, but I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to get – everything kind of warts and all and for a creator who's passed away you can do that but for someone who's alive still and they're like i don't really like that stuff i don't want to put that stuff back out there again like how do you deal with it mm-hmm. fortunate fortunately lynn said you know what that's okay let's do it uh i you know i know i personally don't really like these things but i see the value in it so let's do it and so we were able to do that which is great because some of these strips that are in the first volume haven't seen the light of day since they were first published in newspapers way that many years ago just because Lynn doesn't like them anymore. <laughs> so they haven't made them into any any collections. So that's been really good. What is it like um, for you as the editor when you're writing the introductions? How much pressure do you put on yourself when you're introducing the content? Oh, that's a good question. I, I do... I put a lot of pressure on myself to find something that's interesting and that hasn't been said before. I, uh, Lynn has done writing for her own books, and she like she has um, anniversary books, 10, 15, 20, 25 year anniversary books, and she has a lot of writing of her own in there. She also has an auto she has an, a biography that has been written about her. And so, and then she's done countless interviews. She's always doing interviews and telling stories and stuff. And like, what is the stuff that I can say that hasn't already been said a bunch of times? And that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. And, and especially like, 
with the beginning of the strip I don't want to just retell the origin of how she came about the strip and I want to try to make it interesting for people who first of all haven't read any of that those interviews or any of those writings that she's done but also people who have read all of those things so it's like how do you find that middle ground <laughs> so it is a little difficult as you go through it all I mean obviously as you said like you know you came of age with the strip at a certain point but obviously you're you know when you start doing the first volumes it's stuff that you know predated you um what has that i mean have you already kind of read that material in the intervening years or again as you said some of this had never been reprinted before so what was it like for you to kind of re-experience something that i guess you thought you already knew but again now you're actually seeing the original strips because you saw the family years later yeah that that was really cool to see these strips that i'd never seen before and uh, and in a lot of cases, only had known the either censored versions or retouched versions or whatever that kind of stuff. Uh, to be able to to see them and also place them in their proper context was was quite cool. And I think that we do that really well with the first couple of books, placing the the material in a good context so people can enjoy them uh, for what they are from the time frame that they are. Uh, when Lynn retired her story in 2008, she decided to, um, well, the syndicate started reprinting the strips, and she kind of went into a semi-retirement. She would, uh, she would create new strips to be inserted in the story as it was being rerun mm-hmm. uh, to kind of flesh out some of the characters or smooth over some continuity issues or just... Uh, um, make the dates line up better or whatever, that kind of stuff. And so a lot of the uh, the newer books that were published before IEW and Library of American Comics started doing them uh, were publishing these, like they went back to the beginning as well, but published them with these new strips in like inserted in there. And so like, the mom and dad are young again. April, the, the youngest daughter, doesn't exist because she hadn't been born yet. And and I started forgetting what was – when I was reading those books, I started forgetting what was original and what was not original. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so now we, are, we went back to the beginning and took out all of, those, all of those strips that she had done that were trying to mimic the old style. And we're going to save those for the last volume. We will still put those in there, but we're going to include them in the final book. Again, trying to place it in context, letting readers know that she went back to the beginning and redid these, you know, did new strips in the old style and that kind of stuff. That's fascinating. I had I, heard of some of that. I didn't realize the intricacies of how she did it. Was there ever any thought of almost the, like as supplemental material to include some of it? in their first volumes like because so people could kind of see the differences or was it always kind of no this has to kind of be pushed to the to the back uh it was my um yeah that was something that we did talk about but i was very firm in that i want people to ex- to experience this in chronological order um i i will be when we get around to the, the last volume i'll definitely make sure that my writing will include the examples of old versus new so people can see the difference that's where we'll do that comparison and mm-hmm. uh, talk about that uh, when you look at the strips like she evolved so much as an artist that when she went to try and mimic her old style it still didn't look like her old style because she is just so much of a better artist <laughs> than she was back then so uh, you can see the difference uh, and 
yeah, it'll just be pushed back to the last volume. Okay. Now, um, one thing I really enjoy about uh, reading through the collection is the the additional commentary that Lynn does give. Yeah. What is it like? I mean, like, how did you, when you talked to her about it, like, first of all, was it always part of the process that you thought that, you know, this would be good to include some commentary from her where, where possible? And how did you kind of thread the line between what's too much and what's too little? So there's two parts of that story. Uh, IDW did a series of Bloom County uh, back a, a number of years ago. They reprinted all of Bloom County and when it evolved into Outland and when it evolved into Opus, all of those comic strips, they, they did all of that. And so Berkeley Breathed is the other living creator that Library of American Comics has worked with. And he did commentary in the margins just like we're doing with For Better Force. And when I bought those books and I read through them, I'm like, this is just so amazing that we get to get the inside scoop. As, I, as I'm reading these through, I get these little notes and tidbits about behind-the-scenes stuff and, and all that. And I thought, i got to have that. Because Lynn is still with us, i got to have that for For Better For Worse too. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, also, she'd been doing that herself on her website. Every time that there was a new... Like, uh, her website puts on the front page whatever current strip is in the newspaper at the time. Okay. And often she'll add her own little note or commentary to go along with that on the website. So a lot of that work had already been done. And so I just went through every single comment there and picked out the ones that I thought were best suited for the books. A lot of the times she goes into anecdotal stories about her own childhood or upbringing. And that is not, first of all, they're long stories, so they wouldn't fit in the margins of the pages here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times I think that the, I, I opted to choose, um, the comments that were more about the creative process rather than about the anecdotal stories. Mm. So I picked those ones. And now we're at the point where the volume that we published, uh, that just came out, volume five that just came out a few weeks ago, um, that volume has now surpassed where the newspapers have reprinted. So now I'm having to get Lynn to... uh, to kind of hurry up, I guess, with the, <laughs> with this strip commentary because now it's on a, a lot more accelerated pace because she was she could do them, you know, a day at a time or whatever as they were going. But now we're like trying to squeeze three and a half years into one book, so it's like, yeah, Lynn, you gotta get working. But she's happy to do it. She's she's having a great time going back and trying to remember all of this, the, the creative process behind these strips as well. So I do have to thank you and IDW for sending me a, vo- a copy of Volume Five. Um, I was very excited to get it because I had thought in my head like, oh, maybe I'll get the box sets if they ever do box sets. Because often with the with newspaper newspaper or strip collections, often they end up kind of grouping them together. Um, yeah. So I had kind of let it go by, even though I knew you were working on it. So you, when the volume five came, I showed it to my son, and he had never seen for better or for worse before. Because you know, yeah, I mean, like most modern families, we don't really get much newspapers anymore. So uh, we do a, a lot of our, our news is, is done through different channels. So he was like, well, what is this? 
this. And I'm like, well, I was trying to explain it to him. And so we we started reading through volume five and he was really enjoying it. And as a parent, I can now appreciate it on different levels, obviously, than I did as a child uh, yeah. when I would have first, you know, come to see it uh, in the newspaper strips as well. And again, just like you, like I had only ever really experienced the color ones. So I had never really seen the black and whites. And at first my son was very resistant and it was like, no, I just want to, I just want to read the color ones. And I'm like, right, well, Zach, yeah. like you might like the black and whites too. Um, and then we went back and we started reading, you know, the ones that we kind of flipped through and he was really enjoying them. So it's interesting to me that first of all, it still plays like it's, you know, it doesn't matter how many years later because it was never about, you know, kind of the accoutrements at the time. It was about this kind of timeless, you know, um, you know, sense of, you know, of a family that my son is seven years old. So he's right in that, you know, kind of perfect hotspot, especially reading through volume five, because, you know, he's, he loves April, uh, cause she's just a little younger than him. Um, so she's, you know, he loves the way she speaks and he also loves, you know, the siblings. So he's really enjoying it. So he was enjoying it so much. I was like, okay, well, I'll get volume four. Uh, cause you know, we'll get to see April get born and that'll be exciting yeah. and he'll really enjoy that. Um, and so I'm, you know, now I'm about to buy volumes one and two. And I, I joked with you offline before about how for some reason, volume three is like the white whale. Yeah. I don't even know why that one, like the print runs of these are all the same. They, we haven't, they're not different. And so volume three is sold out. It's like, I, I don't know why. <laughs> It doesn't even have one of the most important stories. Like the most important stories in For Better or For Worse, or the most popular ones at least, are found in Volume 4 and Volume 5. I would have figured, if anything, Volume 4 would sell it before Volume 3, but there you go. (laughs) So sorry about that, Adam. I have no idea. (laughs) And it's up to IDW if they are going to reprint it. Um, Unfortunately, we don't get a say because they foot the bill for the the reprint costs. (laughs) And so if they want to do it, uh, we can say that we want them to do it, but ultimately it's their choice. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, now with as, as you as you progress through, so is it in my, in my eyes deceiving me? Is, is volume four significantly bigger than volume five? It's not. There was a volume five is using different paper. Oh, okay, and it's a little bit thinner, and so the spine is just thinner. Uh, but that's that's it. I mean, if you look at the page count, it's still like, you know, 520 pages or whatever, 530 pages. Uh, I, there, we the, the paper wasn't our choice. We there was some sort of mix up in communication at some point. I'm not exactly sure where, but um, the different paper was used. It's a shame because you know I, like a lot of us collectors, have spine fetishes. <laughs> And especially when it's my book series, it's like I want all the spines to look the same, but now I have one volume that's going to be thinner than the rest of them. Do you feel like you can't complain about other people's volumes if yours aren't uh, the same? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Uh, I can now better relate because I'm sure that uh, nobody is trying to do that intentionally. Uh, Well, maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they're just oblivious in some cases. But for the most part, if you get one where it's like the number the number volume number on the spine is higher than the other volume numbers. It was probably just a mix up and no one meant for that to happen. And I can, I can relate to those screw ups a little bit better now. So what you're really saying is that you want to apologize to quad publishing. (laughs) Yeah, that's an in joke for all of you listening here. Quad (laughs) publishing. Well, their mistakes are not the spine fetish mistakes. They have some actual fundamental 
uh, construction <laughs> issues that they have they have to figure out. <laughs> so because you're on the show, of course, I'm going to make sure that this ended up going up on the Epic Collection uh, uh, group because people will want to know what you're talking about. So they yep. will they will get that reference. That is true. They will. <laughs> I, I, I know my audience. <laughs> Um, with, with with looking, obviously you're, you're already like well ahead working on the next volumes because uh, you know I, when we spoke back in August, you were already kind of put it, putting the finishing touches on volume five, uh, which has yep. now just come out. So as, as it progresses, and again, you see the characters getting older, um, and now that you've been able to kind of really you know appreciate, I, I would imagine all thirty years now of, of the strip. Um, mm-hmm. What is your favorite time period, or what is it the stuff that you kind of grew up on or that you knew of because that has kind of that nostalgic kind of memory? Or and again, going to the library and getting those strips and kind of seeing those, or has something kind of popped out as being, oh wow, I, I can't you know believe how much I really enjoy that. Like, what has kind of become your favorite era of the, you know a thirty year strip? Uh, it, uh, my favorite era is the '90s. You can break down Lynn's uh, whole career into the three decades that she did it. So there's the she started in 1979. So you have the '80s, mm-hmm. and then you have the '90s, and you have the 2000s. And she ended the strip. I think by the time she had fully retired, it was about 2010. And all three of those decades are drastically different in terms of. The, the style of her artwork because she just keeps on progressing over the years uh, and then also in terms of the subject matter and the way she tells the stories as well so if you I, I have a good appreciation for all three of these eras um, the 80s when her drawings are new and raw and like she takes more chances with the funny nature and like the extreme poses and uh, it's it's there's just something really really charming about those early years. The the early years also focus heavily on the parents, and at the time, especially in the late seventies, the feminist movement uh, really drove a lot of the the gags and storylines that happened in that era. Uh, and so there's a lot of really good material there, very funny stuff. And then the nineties is where she settles into more of the long-term storytelling, the long, longer narratives. Her drawing, has, I think, personally, has found this really nice sweet spot between very well-constructed characters. It's a lot more refined, but still retains the really funny, um, the funny poses or funny outtakes that she, she's known for. And then in the 2000s, her drawing evolves more and I think becomes a lot more serious hmm. to reflect more of the serious tone that the strip is taking. Like, she's still really funny, but the stories end up being a lot more um, a lot more real, I guess, or down-to-earth and uh, um, deals with more about loss and death, yeah, death in the family and all that kind of stuff and, um, and hardships and whatnot. And so I appreciate, and, and she also, her cast has expanded from the insular five-person family to now a cast of, like, the kids are growing up and having relationships and kids of their own, and there's a whole supporting cast of all these characters, and she has this huge juggling act of making sure all of these characters are getting screen time or, or page time or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so I really admire her writing for that as well. But my favorite era is the 90s. That sweet spot that I was talking about of the seriousness with the, with the, the comedy 
her drawing. I absolutely love how she, what she settled into in the '90s in terms of her artwork, uh, and that's and coincidentally, you know, that's the stuff that I was grew up on as well through the early '90s and the mid '90s and stuff. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now, obviously, I mean, this is, I mean, obviously it's pleasurable because you enjoy you enjoy the material, but it is also work now. Um, do you, have you shared the strip with your family? Yep. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, my kids, they, the books are so big, I think it's intimidating for them to want to actually try to read them. <laughs> but if they ever get into it, I think they'd really enjoy it. Um, and then, you know, I've passed along copies to my, my parents who love it as well and, are big supporters of, of the stuff that I do and, and my own siblings. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, uh, I love to spread the word. How old are your kids again? Pass them along. My oldest is 11, and I have an 8-year-old, and my youngest is 5. Okay. So I'd have to read that one to her. But the old, my older kids should... I, I'm constantly trying to get them to read more comics. And it's just getting to the point where they're actually... My son came to me the other day and said... Um, I know I don't ask you this very often, but is there a book on your bookshelf you think I might enjoy? <laughs> and wow. I was like, yes, the day has come. Because I'm always like, hey, you should read this. You should read this. And they they do. They take my suggestions, but they never come to me asking me for more. But mm. now they're at that point. So maybe I'll see if they'll give for better or for worse a chance now. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Curtis, thank you again so much for uh, for taking the time out of your day to chat about For Better or For Worse and again for sending me the volume five. And I feel bad that I didn't buy it earlier. So I am def- definitely going to buy the rest of the uh, the library. I don't know how I'm going to get volume three. Hopefully someday I'll be able to find a... It, it's weird because I didn't expect when I, when I was like, oh, I'm going to buy the rest of For Better or For Worse. Oh, there's a whale. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's not even that old. Like, it's, uh, it's, volume three came out fall of last year i think or something like that so yeah like it's it's recent you know yeah. and yet somehow it's you know it's 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 a collector's item it's almost a hundred dollars on amazon so which is not that far over cover but still it's just not Don't what i expected the i'll find a copy for you adam i'll figure out something i'll see if i can <laughs> figure out a way don't pay those scammers right nope, don't pay them definitely not well curtis again thank you so much for for joining us today my pleasure yeah definitely and i uh, lynn johnston is um, up for talking i spoke with her the other day and she's up for chatting with you so hopefully we can get a lynn johnson interview on your podcast in the near future that would be uh really fantastic it's but it's funny because i was i was saying to my parents i'm like you know there's a chance i might be able to interview the creator for better or for worse and at least that they know you know comic book yeah. creators they, they they don't know who tom defalco <laughs> is but right, like yeah. for better or for worse they know what that is like there's you know that universal appeal that everyone kind of saw that cartoon for 30 years so everyone kind of knows you know if they don't know her directly they at least they know the cartoon yeah that's good awesome Anyways, yeah so- thanks for having me on the show it was a blast talking to you and uh i love that you are uh, willing to to dig deep and get really nerdy about this stuff with me too <laughs> absolutely thanks so much you're welcome bye